Hey everyone, I'm Dan Cortler, the host of TED Climate. Each episode, we unpack the problems and solutions of climate change. This season of the show, we're getting into some big ideas that make us optimistic about the future, like meat grown from cells and leather made from mushrooms. And the best part? We look at how building a greener future can be an upgrade instead of a sacrifice. Find and follow TED Climate wherever you're listening to this. This is a CBC Podcast. Well, Salima, where are we? Hey, Laura. Well, I've brought you to an outdoor market in Uttar Pradesh. It is India's most populated state. So this is Salima, everyone. Salima Shivji, our, our South Asia correspondent at the CBC. And I'm Laura Lynch. I'm wondering, why have you brought us here? <laughs> well, Laura, it does sound like a normal market day, but I want you to try to close your eyes and come with me. Imagine you're walking through this market, as I did, and you can see the heat really getting to the vegetable vendors. Many are huddled under umbrellas and tarps. They're trying to grab any refuge from the fierce sun that's beating down, and they are used to being outside in the heart of summer. This is a heat wave. Temperatures are in the mid-40s. Okay, that is hot. <laughs> I mean, I, I've never been to India, but I think I've experienced heat like that when I was working next door in Pakistan. And I know that India is actually one of the countries that is most vulnerable to rising temperatures and extreme heat. That's right. Climate experts say that hot days and nights will increase here in India dramatically over the next few decades, with heat waves actually arriving earlier, more often, and lasting longer. Some studies predict India will even see two more weeks of extreme heat every year by mid-century. So today, we've asked you to help us understand what that means for the people who live there, for the economy, and, and what can actually be done about it. So this is What on Earth, where we bring you a world of climate solutions. So let's start with one vegetable seller at that market. His name is Dinesh. He's 30 years old, and he's crouched on his blanket where his cucumbers and okra are displayed in front of him with a wet scarf wrapped around his head. It gets so hot, Dinesh tells me, that it's difficult out here. We're exposed. There's no solution. There really is nowhere to take cover, nothing to save us from the heat. But what else can we do, he tells me. I need to sell my vegetables. Yeah, I understand that. But it's people like Dinesh. They're the ones who are forced to work outside. They're the most at risk from this new reality of more extreme weather. Yes, and if you think about it, it's quite astonishing to think about the numbers. It's roughly half of India's population of 1.4 billion who are outdoor laborers who have to be outside in that heat, and they are the hardest hit, like Ali Sher. I spoke with the 53-year-old farmer as he was out in the fields at noon, and you can hear him there. He was washing a batch of his cucumbers on a really hot day in May. Ali's whole family was outside with him. His wife was there, six of his sons, one young daughter, all pulling out cucumbers, washing them and packing them in these large barrels to sell at the market later in the day. And that's not all. The family also needs to be out longer on extremely hot days to fully water the crops, which wilt faster in the heat. 
So he says we have to work under the sun. No matter how hot it gets, who else will do it otherwise? We have no other option. But with more hot days and more frequent heat waves becoming a new reality in India, working outside might not always be an option for Ali, and that has consequences. I would think so, yeah, for the workers, first and foremost, but also for the economy? Of course, India already loses more money on lost labor due to the heat than any other country in the world. And it is going to get worse, climate experts say. Here's Chandra Bhushan. He runs iForest. It's a New Delhi-based nonprofit focused on climate research. Climate change has exacerbated heat wave. Uh, We now have longer heat wave to areas that were not there. There are different estimations in terms of cost of heat wave. And it varies from as little as a few decimal percentage of our GDP to, say, 2-3% of our GDP. In extreme cases, it could reach as much as 5% of our GDP. So it has. It has impact on agricultural productivity. It has impact on our economy in general. It will have impact on labor, manual labor. Uh, They will not be able to work during certain part of the year, during certain period in a day. So last year, India had a terrible heat wave in March that hit wheat production really badly, so sharply that the country had to ban exports. And this year, India had the hottest February in 122 years, the hottest since records started being kept. It's quite alarming and astonishing to think about. A warming trend that has led the International Labour Organization to project that India stands to lose 6% of working hours by the end of this decade, all because of extremely warm weather. And that's huge for a developing country like India, the equivalent of 34 million full-time jobs. Wow. But I know when you talk about labour costs, but extreme heat can and has been deadly, and India is considered particularly at risk. Very much so. Those record-breaking and unprecedented temperatures that we keep seeing in India, climate scientists say will come fast and furious in the years to come. New heat records are expected to be set every three years, and it's not just temperature that's the worry, says Chandra Bhushan. Of course, our temperatures are increasing, but the killer is not the heat. Humans can survive at, uh, you know, higher 40s. The killer is heat and humidity. So if your wet bulb temperature is 35 degrees, it can kill you. A temperature of 45 degrees will not kill you at the same level of exposure. So I think this understanding is also important that it is not just heat which is important. It is heat plus humidity that we need to be uh, worried about. The problem is that climate change is simultaneously increasing temperature and humidity. So he talks there about wet bulb temperature, which is a growing threat here in India because of the rapidly warming Indian Ocean. So officials are struggling to get a handle on what high wet bulb temperatures can do. But it's really about humidity and the effect that that has on the body. So, of course, many of India's regions, as we know, are very humid and getting more so. Humidity makes sweating less efficient or really not efficient at all. So if it's really hot out, the body sweats, the sweat evaporates, and that cools your body. But high humidity levels mean that the air around you is already so moist that sweat can't evaporate to cool body temperatures. And here's the thing, that wet bulb threshold, which is the combination of heat and humidity, and when that combination gets really dangerous, that threshold is much lower than what we traditionally think of in evaluating extreme heat. So when we think it's really hot and it's about to get dangerous, we think, oh, it's got to be mid-40s, closer to 50 degrees Celsius. But for the wet bulb temperature, when that gets dangerous, if it's higher than 32 degrees, it makes working outside really difficult. When it hits around 35, that heat turns deadly. I've experienced that kind of humidity. It feels like a really heavy cloak 
around you and you and you write. You're just the sweating doesn't matter. So it's just so oppressive. So how are Indian authorities responding to what really is a combined threat? Well, India has regional heat action plans. They've had them for years, but they mainly focus on dry extreme heat conditions without factoring in that humidity. But that is changing. So in April of this year, more than a dozen people died at a large outdoor rally. It was just outside Mumbai. Hundreds of other people were hospitalized with heat stroke symptoms. The temperature that day wasn't even 40 degrees, but the wet bulb threshold was met and it was exceeded. So that fatal heat wave was actually made 30 times more likely because of climate change, a recent study concluded. And this will continue to be an issue for India moving forward, that combination of extreme heat and extreme humidity. So that event, as tragic as it was, was a shock to officials and to Debbie Goenka. He's a longtime environmentalist. He is with a group called Conservation Action Trust. I spoke to him a couple of weeks after the fatal heat wave just outside his Mumbai office. I think it's been a huge wake-up call because the kind of publicity it got was immense. And I think a lot of outdoor events that were planned have been cancelled already, keeping this in mind. And people have started taking some kind of precautions. It also prompted institutional change in how India's meteorological department tracks and then declares heat waves. So they are trying out now a new heat index code that will take humidity into account, not just basic temperature. Got to say, Salima, I'm surprised that they, they weren't doing that before. But obviously, they're doing what they can to adapt. And along with them, local environmental groups are doing their own things. So I want you to take us through some of the initiatives you found out about Um, that are attempting to tackle that rising wet bulb temperature. Yeah, there are small grassroots projects kind of everywhere in India, and they they are focused on those who suffer the most in extreme heat. India's poorest, who often live in cramped makeshift settlements, those settlements made of metal and other materials that really attract heat from the fierce midday sun and trap that heat. And it is the very young children who are least able to handle rising temperatures. So that is a government daycare center that I visited in one of Chennai's poorest areas in India's southern Tamil Nadu province. They have a new experiment on the small one-room building's roof. It's a rooftop garden, and it was only two weeks old when I visited. It was still growing. Savita Narayana Murthy was there to monitor the effects of the added greenery. So she works with an environmental consultant group called Sea Balance, which is leading this project and several others across India. And when I was there, Savita was walking around the room. She was stepping around that group of children who were playing loudly, you know, oblivious to what was happening around them. And she was taking manual readings of the air with a little temperature gun. It was only the second day of her taking those measurements. All the while, she's wiping her brow furiously. She has this handkerchief and she's she's using it a lot because Savita was sweating. And let me tell you, it was really hot in that small one-room daycare. And still, it was better than before, all because of that rooftop garden, Savita says. So we are noticing around a one degree difference between the two across the day measurements. It's around 1 to 1.5. As the green patch increases, we look forward to the temperature difference being somewhere around 3 degrees uh, to what it is usually. So we hope that the children can um, feel a little more cooler sitting inside where they are uh, playing, doing their activities. I mean, it's, it's hopeful. We feel hopeful about it. So just a few degrees that make a big difference. Since my visit, the garden has filled in a little and grown. So has the gap between the previous temperatures and what it's like now at the daycare. And the garden's effect has actually exceeded expectations. It's an estimated five degrees cooler these days. And 
That's when the garden is still not fully grown. Plus, Savita says there are additional benefits that the group is evaluating with sensors. So the garden looks to be improving air quality nearby, Laura, and helping to replenish the groundwater by trapping and draining the rains. Wow, that's that's amazing. And I bet the kids are a lot happier with it being five degrees cooler. But but this group is, is looking at solutions beyond just daycares, right? Yeah, they're also focused on individual homes. So the group is active in six Indian cities. The, some of those are Chennai, there's Bangalore, Delhi, Mumbai as well. And their focus is always the roof because it's heat coming from the roof that warms up homes so rapidly in the cheapest Indian housing. So in one Mumbai slum, the environmental group has installed panels on several rooftops. And I'll tell you about about those and how they work in a second. But inside, right underneath the panels hanging from the ceiling are your traditional fans and they are working double duty. I stood under one of them to see if I could feel the effects of those cooling panels that are on the roof above. And I was there with the project's engineer, Hassan Albana Khan. He was by my side. Now, one thing that you can notice right away is that this breeze is not hot. Uh, We'll look at another house to just witness how hot it is just standing under the fan uh, in peak summer during afternoon time. So you can hear Hassan there, the engineer, speaking to some of the family members who live in the tiny one-room home. At the time, there were two women there and three young kids. Now, they say before, at midday, in the height of India's summer heat season, they could never put their hands on the ceiling. It would just be scorching hot and would burn their skin. But now they say it is much better. It stays cooler inside their home. So it feels cooler, but but what about the temperature measurements? What what has the group noticed? Well, Hassan says that this particular type of cooling panel is actually one of the most successful of Sea Balance's pilot projects because of its design. But I'll let him explain why. Through our sensor readings, we had seen an average fall of around three to four degrees during peak summertime. So basically, there's a fan above my head here, and on the roof. Above this fan, can you describe what's there? Yeah, there is a material called EcoBoard. This material has been made uh, through recycling of waste. It contains metal, it contains plastic, it contains all kinds of waste. It has been made from that and compressed into a sheet. And what we have done is, we have made a mechanism out of it, which can close the roof during daytime and which can open it during the night time. The idea being that during the daytime we don't want the sun to hit the roof so that the solution acts as a barrier and during the night time what we would intend is for that to open so that the roof is exposed to the night sky which in turn actually releases the heat. That's really interesting Salima because I thought when you first mentioned panels the first thing that came to mind was solar panels it's obviously not that and then I thought maybe reflective panels but this is just something that is creating a barrier, and the fact that it can be opened and closed, it, it's really, really ingenious. So simple and yet so effective. And really, it's just one example or of the work that they are doing. At other locations, the panels are made of different materials. There's a, they're made of aluminum foil, which dissipates heat. They also have other rooftops where they've installed rows of recycled plastic bottles. And those bottles, it's just a, you know a whole bunch of them, a, a grid of plastic bottles full of water to cool down the inside. 
it's not the most effective method, but it's cheap and easy. And that's really what Hassan Khan, the engineer, emphasizes. Now, he told me there are, of course, limits to what these types of simple solutions can do. Some days, he estimates about 5 or 10% of the time, the heat outside in the middle of an Indian summer is just too extreme and the panels don't work to cool down the homes. With heat waves becoming more extreme, Hassan says that there will have to be more measures to supplement all of these small steps. But he still says... These are easy methods to install. They're adaptable, and they do help blunt the effects of the scorching heat. And and he says, of course, every degree cooler that they can make a home makes a big difference for the Indians most affected by extreme heat. Right, because things like air conditioning are absolutely impractical and unaffordable. It's been so interesting hearing about this, Salima Shivji. Thank you. You're very welcome. It is quite something to hear about the heat and that humidity, which is making things so difficult for people in India. I mean, here in Canada, we've seen our share of unseasonable weather this spring, too. In many cases, it's fueled wildfires, and that's something we're going to be talking about later in the show. Mm -hmm. I mean, hasn't it been warmer here in BC than usual? That's Molly Siegel. She's here with me now. Uh, Yes, I think the answer is yes to that. And speaking of wondering whether things are warmer than usual, Molly, have you looked at the CBC's new climate dashboard? Yeah, I have seen it. It's really great, but we should probably explain what it is for listeners. Okay, it's a way to check out whether temperatures anywhere in Canada are actually normal or not. Um, It tracks current conditions, extreme weather events in real time and compares them to historical trends. So there's more than 450 locations, so people can search for their own town or city or maybe the town or city where their loved ones might live. Uh, you can just go to cbc.ca slash climate. Oh, I'm going to take a look at Vancouver. What do we have here? Temperatures in the last 30 days were extremely hot compared to the historic average. So, yeah, this is true. Yeah, okay. Well, um, besides being hotter than average, it also has brought the flowering gardens forward a lot earlier. We Mm. talked about gardens recently, and Molly, you have brought along some listener email from people who wrote in after that. Yeah, exactly. I'm here to keep that conversation going about gardens and also pollinators. Laura, last week, you chatted with Sheila Kola and Lorraine Johnson to help get us some answers for our listeners about that topic of gardens and pollinators. And just a reminder, Lorraine and Sheila are the authors of A Garden for the Rusty Patched Bumblebee. No surprise, once we aired that conversation, we got even more questions from our listeners. If there's anything you know about CBC listeners, they love to talk about gardening. So that doesn't surprise me at all. Yeah, absolutely. So I reached out to Lorraine Johnson again to ask for her help. Were you out in your garden today? (laughs) Yes, I have been. I, yep. Of course, Lorraine was out in her garden. (laughs) Yeah, she was dealing with the tomatoes. Um, So I read her some of our listener questions, including this one from Cameron Petty in Edmonton, Alberta. Quote, I am looking for low-growing plant species, preferably native, that I can overseed on my lawn. So, Laura, like, what he means by that is just kind of scattering the seeds on top of the lawn. 
Cameron goes on to write, I am not a fan of monoculture and want a variety of plants that will do well with drought and support pollinators. I do not use herbicides or pesticides, and I mow my lawn high and as few times as I can get away with, without angering the neighbors. Well, I think they're uh, fabulous questions. I think he's going about this in, the, in a great way, the no pesticides and um, reducing mowing and all of that wonderful. I would suggest that in terms of seeding them into a lawn, it's really hard for a lot of the native plants to actually outcompete the kind of solid mass that is turf grass. So I would actually suggest purchasing a few small seedlings of native plants, digging little holes strategically throughout the lawn, and planting those seedlings, giving them a bit of space so that they can spread. Some species she suggests for Cameron in Edmonton are pussy toes, woodland strawberry, prairie buttercup, or Canada violet. I love all those names. <laughs> They're great. They're so whimsical. <laughs> uh, Lorraine says that all of these wonderfully named species are low-growing and they're tough and they can take some foot traffic. And if you're listening in other parts of Canada, you can find ideas about what to plant by checking out your native plant society where you live. Great, Cameron Petty. I hope this helps. Now, we also have a question from Nadine Katz in Richmond, B.C. She says, what keystone species can I plant in my south-facing patio in my planters? Will goldenrod or milkweed grow in pots? What other suggestions do you have? Yes, we can grow native plants and build habitat in containers as well. So, you know, on a patio or on a balcony. In terms of the keystone species for BC that will do well in a south-facing patio, I would suggest a plant like the West Coast goldenrod um, would be good. Um, Fleabane would be good. Pussy toes, again, pearly everlasting. Red columbine, those are all some good ones. Actually, a number of really great ones out on the West Coast are shrubs. And depending on the size of the planter that's going on the patio, you can also plant shrubs like willows, plums, currants. Those are keystone species. Lorraine also says, yes, milkweed is a great one, too. In BC, Laura, you're going to love this. It's called showy milkweed. (laughs) I wonder why. I got to see a picture of that. (laughs) Uh, She also told me that anyone across the country looking for keystone species for their garden can just search online for the National Wildlife Federation's Garden for Wildlife. Okay. Our listener, Nadine, has her work cut out for her. We know that now. Yeah. And just for fun, I asked Lorraine about one other question we got from Alana Howell in Vancouver, who asked about invasive species. And this is kind of a philosophical question. Yeah, yeah, (laughs) yeah, exactly. She asks, are they really invasive plants or are they climate refugees or maybe climate migrants? The thing about plants that are often called invasive, so these are the plants, often they were introduced for horticulture and then they jump over the garden gate really and escape into the wild and reduce biodiversity in the wild. Many of these species were introduced from the beginning of colonization of North America so they're not really necessarily all plants that are moving in response to climate change at all. 
And we know that's an important distinction from the shift that is happening with native species. Oh, yeah. And that's another big topic or another can of worms that Lorraine and others could get into in oh much more detail. <laughs> Just wanted a gardening pun. Thanks, Molly. Well, before we move on to the rest of the show, I do want to share one more email from Leslie Myers in Saanich, B.C. I really enjoyed today's episode featuring the topic of replacing lawns and formal gardens with pollinator-friendly Indigenous plants. While listening, I was out in my backyard surveying the thriving Gary Oak Meadow I created where once was only grass and gravel. In less than two years, with the guidance of local botanists specializing in plants native to the Saanich Peninsula, my yard now buzzes with a plethora of bees, birds, and butterflies, featuring everything from camas to yarrow. Leslie told us about the Meadow Makers Project, which offers webinars and other resources for pollinator-friendly yards. Thanks for that, Molly. I just got to say, since we did that show, I noticed that um, right in my own neighborhood, uh, the local government has established pollinator gardens on a a little bit of greenway. And I'm noticing all sorts of other plants that have lots of bees in them. So I think it was a, a great episode with lots of interest for everybody. I love that. Thanks, Molly. Thank you. By the way, you can listen back to that episode about gardens as climate solutions. You can just head over to the CBC Listen app or wherever you get your podcasts. And hey, we love it when you have a question that we can look into. So keep them coming. We, we would like to help you find climate solutions in your everyday life. It might be about greening your shopping habits or preparing for weather extremes. You can email us about whatever you want to know about earth at cbc.ca. And better yet... We love to hear your voice, so send us a voice memo. Just look for the Voice Memo app on your phone, hit record, and then share it with us via email. And that email again is earth at cbc.ca for your questions about finding climate solutions in your life. You're listening to What on Earth on CBC Radio 1 and Sirius XM. I'm Laura Lynch. Coming up, it turns out that having a beautiful, new, energy-efficient home isn't just for the 1%. We're going to meet people living in social housing that's created with beauty, resiliency, and the environment in mind. Paper or plastic? Oh, I forgot my own bags. Um, plastic. No, wait, paper. Hang on, which one's better? I don't know. Don't stress, Neil. The podcast Living Planet is here to help. We know you want to do what's right for the planet, but you're busy and you have to make a thousand small decisions every day. So we endeavor to answer... What's better? Cotton or polyester? Tea or coffee? For answers to these environmental conundrums and your questions, subscribe to Living Planet wherever you listen to podcasts. Wildfires continue to wreak havoc in so many communities, and in recent days, people in Nova Scotia have faced what many thought unimaginable. It really struck home when I saw flames A couple hundred feet high, the smoke was very thick. The smoke and the flames were so bad, you couldn't see your hand in front of you. We were getting fire after fire after fire after fire. We've had to basically quickly unhook the hose from our trucks and run for our lives. Our house is flattened. 
It's just the concrete is left, you know, the, the chimney on the side and, and you know, it's, it's all gone. I told her that daycare is not around anymore and the first thing she said is, even the playground? I said, yeah, even the playground. People in Nova Scotia, where wildfires have forced many to make a quick escape as the flames damaged or destroyed hundreds of homes and structures. Fire Weather, The Making of a Beast, is a book about another devastating fire, the one that destroyed much of Fort McMurray in May of 2016. It's just been released. Written by John Valiant, it contains lessons for Canadians grappling with these latest emergencies. It also traces the way climate change has affected the nature of wildfire. Just a few days ago, I had the opportunity to speak to John Valiant as part of the Vancouver Writers' Festival. Here's part of our conversation in front of a full house at the Vancouver Public Library. Before we get to the book, I just wanted to ask you about the current wildfire situation, because here we are. We're in the same time of year that the Fort Mac fire happened. Um, You were writing with me earlier today. You said Alberta's smoke is in Denver right now. Nova Scotia's smoke is in Boston. Nova Scotia's wildfire is the largest in the province's history, and that's a region that you know well. So I'm wondering what your reaction is to what you're seeing unfold. Uh, As a New Englander, uh, born and raised, really familiar with that climate, uh, how damp and cloudy it is, how moist it is, really, really shocked. And I've been immersed in wildfire behavior globally for the, really for the past seven years. And um, even though I've been thinking about it and really nothing else for an unhealthy amount of time, I was still completely blindsided by what's happening in the maritime provinces right now. I really thought they were if anything, decades away from the type of desiccation and fire that we're experiencing out here. And so really shock, you know, and I'm kind of wrapping my head around it. And then what's really chilling, though, is watching these safety officers and natural resources officers give these very earnest summaries of what's going on. And they're saying things like, it's out of control. There are more fires than we have people to put on them. We've got a few rough days ahead. And this is exactly what the forest fire manager, Bernie Schmidt, and what the fire chief, Darby Allen, were saying on May 2nd and May 3rd, 2016. And, you know, they're obligated to be measured and controlled, but they also, those men, and I'm not sure, this fellow too, don't quite understand the potential that is brewing around them. And it's really spooky to hear people say the same thing in this, and they don't know. But out in Alberta, in California, people have already been initiated into this new reality. And it's such a shock. It's so difficult for people to integrate. And so I just have a lot of, lot of sympathy for people out there who are encountering it for the first time because it's an enormous thing to try to process uh, when you are used to a very different reality and a, a different sense of what stability is and what it means. Now, just to be clear there, the men John Valiant mentioned, Bernie Schmidt and Darby Allen, They fought the Fort McMurray fire, and they do feature prominently in his book. In another chapter, John coins the term 21st century fire, and I asked him what that is. 21st century fire, it's really when the noise, uh, the tangible evidence of climate change began to break through the noise of normal climate fluctuation. And so climate scientists, even Exxon's climate scientists, predicted this in the late 60s and early 70s, that 
probably around 2000, these changes due to this buildup of industrial CO2 and methane in the atmosphere would start to make itself felt in higher temperatures, but also in actual weather changes. People were literally talking about this in the 1950s and predicting it. And 2000 was about the moment when we'd really started to notice. And so there are these fire phenomena that are increasingly common um, pyrocumulonimbus cloud. Those were a real rarity. Usually only saw them over volcanoes. Uh, they're referred to in, you know, in the Bible and Greek myths and all kinds of things. And they didn't really show up uh, in atmospheric science until the 90s. And they didn't really become a thing until the 2000s. And now, you know, Alberta's already, you know, produced a bunch of them. BC's produced a bunch of them just this month. And these are huge, huge energetic entities. So that would be one phenomenon. Fire tornadoes, these are actual tornadoes, not fire whirls, but, but EF-rated, you know, EF-3 tornadoes that tear houses out of the ground and throw them across the landscape. Uh, those never occurred before 2000, and the first one was in um, Australia in 2003, and then Redding, California in 2018. Uh, there have been others, but these are these new phenomena, and the, the size, intensity, and the other thing that people uh, talk about made me think about, this is, sounds like 21st century fire, is the speed. Everybody is blindsided by how fast these fires move. And so, you know, fires have a pace and it varies, but what they're doing now is different. And from Nova Scotia to Australia, people are saying the same thing. I, you know, it wasn't there, and then it, suddenly it was, and absolutely overwhelming. Thanks again to the Vancouver Writers' Festival for that audio. I really appreciated being able to speak to John and uh, to be able to read his book. There's a lot more in there. It's not just about what happened in Fort McMurray, although that is fascinating enough on its own. It's also just about the history of fire and how linked it is to our way of life and our desire to burn things for our own use and what's become of that. It's really quite an amazing book. Coming up on next week's show, we'll hear from two people who lived through wildfires in B.C. in 2021. And we'll hear about a project at the University of Victoria dedicated to telling stories like theirs, stories of climate disaster in a way that helps survivors heal. I think it's just shown how when we can come together, there is a lot we can do. And I think it's just highlighted that we do have the power as we move through these disasters and as we move through an era of disaster to create new ways of living, to create new communities and, and build and sustain existing ones that will allow us to live in a more equitable way and just be able to survive climate change together. It's called the Climate Disaster Project, and you'll hear more about it on next week's show. So when I talk about building an eco-friendly home, something I have thought about, or a passive house, I'm wondering what you think about. Maybe that's going to be pretty expensive. <laughs> okay. Hi, Emily. That is CBC Climate reporter Emily Chung. Good thing you popped by since you're sharing our next story with us. Hi, Laura. Yeah, there's an assumption that new green builds are for the wealthy elite here in Canada. 
But I want you to meet Ikram Mahmood. I was shocked the first time. I was shocked. I didn't know what like to feel. I was so excited and happy and like, overwhelming. And right away, I just like uh, come outside because I couldn't even handle the how blessing, how like happy I was. Ikram is a single mom of a two-year-old boy, and she's talking about the first time she saw her new apartment in Kitchener, Ontario. They moved in in April. Before that, Ikram had lost her job. They lost their apartment, and like many families in that situation, had been put up in a motel. This two-bedroom apartment isn't just brand new. It's also built with the latest in green building technology. And Laura, this all proves that eco-homes aren't just for the rich. Actually, it turns out, a lot of Canada's greenest apartments are also some of the most affordable. And many affordable housing providers are leading the way when it comes to green building and green retrofits. I didn't know about any of this. It sounds really interesting. So just start maybe by telling us a bit more about the building that Ikram lives in. Sure. It's a new complex built by affordable housing provider YW Kitchener-Waterloo with funding from the Canadian Mortgage and Housing Corporation. And it's all to help deal with growing homelessness in the region. The first phase opened last year, supportive housing for 41 single women. And the apartment windows are full of plants and cats and decorations such as butterflies. You can see people have really made this their home. The second phase opened this past April for 10 single moms and their kids, including Ikram's two-year-old son. He's a cute, smiley little boy with curly black hair, and we first saw him banging on the window from inside his family's apartment, trying to get our attention as we were filming outside. Yeah, that sounds like a little boy. (laughs) Uh, But I guess the, the important thing for us here is that it's a green building. Yeah, one of the cool things is it was built with a green building technology called mass timber, using engineered wood beams and panels as structural materials in place of a lot of steel and concrete. So it stores carbon. But YW Kitchener-Waterloo chose it for another reason. Here's Abla Chalu, the group's director of homelessness and housing. The main reasons we chose this proposal was because we could build it quickly and house people quickly because we had families in motels for years for such a long time and it wasn't safe to have families and children in those spaces. We were having a lot of gang activities in the motels. So you can build quickly with mass timber because everything is prefabricated. There's a YouTube time-lapse video of the construction online and it's pretty amazing. I I think you should go see it, Laura. Okay. (laughs) Yeah, but the exposed wood, which you can see in areas like the ceiling of the lobby and some of the suites, also makes the end result really beautiful. So off the top, we heard Ikram Mahmood and how overwhelmed she was when she saw her new apartment. Well, Abla Chalu says she's not the only one. We had one of the clients refuse to even step into the unit because she couldn't believe that it was hers to even begin with because she just thought it was just too nice. It was just too beautiful. She just couldn't believe that it would be hers. Just seeing how beautiful everything was designed, the material is of such quality, the exposed wood. Yeah, I'll try not to get emotional about it. Oh, bad, but you can hear that emotion. It must be so important for for these people who are so vulnerable to have not only safe housing, but to have a beautiful place on top of that. It just must be such a difference for them in their lives. But, But this idea of mass timber, is that common for affordable housing buildings? As you can imagine, it isn't. Up until now, it's been considered a higher-end construction material, so mostly in public buildings, universities and colleges, and some commercial and condo buildings. But I actually saw it in 
while touring another recent project in Hamilton, Ontario, a project by a different affordable housing provider called Indwell. So Indwell built a four-story supportive housing complex called James North Landing that sits on top of a church. The church has a gymnasium for sports and all kinds of events, as well as church services. And it's stunning. There are these huge, beautiful mass timber beams that run across the ceiling. And that entire building was recently certified as meeting a leading global standard in energy-efficient construction, the Passive House Standard. That requires buildings to be really airtight and have minimal need for heating and cooling. And James North Landing is just one of many affordable housing complexes in Hamilton built to that standard. But why are affordable housing providers so interested in energy efficiency? Well, Grant Cubitt, Director of Projects and Development for Indwell, puts it this way. I think affordable housing is leading energy efficient buildings because we have a long-term perspective. We're not trying to maximize returns as quickly as possible. We're not trying to cash out after a couple of years. We don't have the same sort of investor pressure of, of you know, making money at every turn. I think those are really the key things. And for most nonprofits, you know, they have some sort of, you know, community or, or sort of ethical motivation towards doing the so-called right thing. And the right thing is often, you know, the affordability for tenants, obviously, but also the contribution to the community. And he says they recognize that climate change is a big problem and governments are trying to bring policies like carbon taxes and net zero mandates to deal with it. And Graham says groups like Indwell know they'll have trouble affording retrofits to decarbonize later. It's cheaper to build a net zero ready building in the first place. And of course, it drastically cuts heating and cooling costs for the entire lifetime of the building. Okay, that makes a lot of sense. But but what about the people who are living in these buildings? What does it mean for them? Well, we heard that when we met one of the residents of James North Landing, Daniel Bentham, and he gave us a tour of his apartment. As you can see, we get a fridge and a, a stove and a, a sink, and the washroom is in there. It has a shower and, and toilet. And this is um, the bedroom area is another um, room as well. And there's also a closet on the left-hand side of the bedroom area that I can store stuff. What's really nice is the heat pump up here. It allows uh, for heat in the winter and, and cool air in the summer. And when I close the windows, you don't hear noise outside. That big window also has a view of Lake Ontario. So this is the sunflower that I'm growing. We're going to plant this on So Friday, with the sunlight, Daniel grew um, sunflower seedling that he planted Monday, plant in the building's garden later that week. Like, I wish you could see it, Laura. He was so proud of it. So, yeah, it's growing. I have to water it every day. <laughs> And Daniel says the home, with all its environmentally friendly features, has made all the difference for him. I'm really pleased and thankful to the Lord for providing this home for me. Um, Having to struggle with uh, mental illness over several years and uh, just being able to be in a supportive environment and also for the environmental aspects of the housing situation, it's conducive to promoting uh, um, good mental health in the tenants that live here. It helps with the depression and anxiety. Having a cooling and heating under precise control puts you at less risk for heat-related illnesses and uh, challenges that can be associated with mental health challenges. Oh, that's really quite an insight. I I remember during the 2021 heat dome uh, out here in B.C., 
that a lot of people who died were vulnerable people in different ways. And, and that's the same population that could actually benefit from supportive housing. Exactly. Graham Cubitt says many of his tenants came from housing situations where they couldn't pay their utility bills and suffered in terrible living conditions. But now... That actually about 75% of our tenants run up a credit with their hydro account because of uh, the, the funds that are available to them as, you know, as low-income tenants. And they just don't need to use electricity because of the way the building is designed. They're saving everything. They're saving money. They're saving the planet. Saving money. Saving the planet. Okay, that sounds like a good combo. Um, I think you said earlier this was one of many social housing buildings in Hamilton that actually meets that passive house standard. Yeah, it's a bit of a trend there. It was awesome to tour around the city and see a few of those sites. Indwell has a few. YWCA Hamilton built one. City Housing Hamilton has a bunch, including an award-winning high-rise tower retrofit. And it's just completed construction of its latest complex, a modular passive house building. That's the sound of one of 24 units getting lifted into place by a crane. Like mass timber, this is another technique for faster construction. I spoke to Sean Botham, manager of development for City Housing Hamilton, who says many local affordable housing providers had been interested in energy-efficient buildings, or what's referred to as high-performance buildings, and had been sharing their tips with each other for years. Then something interesting happened, and federal funders began to require and implement more high-performance targets in their funding standards. So it sort of rolled into funding programs that actually mandated high performance. Okay, this all sounds really good, but most new buildings aren't affordable housing. Passive house standards are also used in luxury housing. I know that because I see it here in Vancouver, for example. So what's the connection between using these techniques for social housing and their popularity in market housing? All the housing providers we talked to in the story say they've gotten a lot of interested calls from other parties, including nonprofit housing providers. Indwell's even started a new spinoff called Flourish to offer consulting help to them. But some of these groups, such as City Housing Hamilton, actually work with construction companies that also work with the private sector. So traditionally, those contractors see new building techniques as risky until they try them out for themselves. We've effectively de-risked it enough that uh, at least one private sector partner has begun and they've got four buildings under construction, all to high performance. So you think this might help it spread? Yeah, it's certainly high performance at this scale already in Hamilton in the public and nonprofit sector is a catalyst for uh, new development and even retrofit work in the for-profit sector. So it sounds like all this is helping address climate change and the housing crisis at the same time. Yeah, the developers we talked to called that multi-solving. Okay, I love the way they come up with all these labels. I can imagine that means doing a few things at once. (laughs) Yeah, yeah, no, trying to solve multiple problems at the same time. And in fact, it looks like making buildings more energy efficient already does that in itself. It doesn't just cut carbon emissions, but helps residents save money on their bills. The heat pumps provide air conditioning that helps them adapt to climate change. And the building environment just generally keeps them healthier. And of course, providing affordable housing solves a lot of problems at once, too. Remember single mom Ikram Mahmood? She says having an affordable home will help both her and her son move forward. Yeah, I feel stable. Yeah, stable, comfortable, because that is like uh, affordable. It's affordable for me. Yeah. Yeah, I can pay, yeah. I don't have to worry that much. For me now, I worry about uh, how I can improve myself. 
Now I'm thinking going to college, how I can get back to college, and that how I will. I'm I'm very sure I want help somebody else that like going through difficult time that I was going before, because the, the love that you can feel is like overwhelming. Oh, it sounds like she's off to a great start with a new home uh, and a beautiful home. It sounds like everything to her. That's a pretty cool thing. So thanks for sharing this great story with us, Emily. It's my pleasure, Laura. Now, Emily was talking about new affordable housing buildings in Hamilton that allow residents to cool their homes in the heat of summer. Soon, though, all landlords in Hamilton could be required to give their tenants that ability. Hamilton City Council is considering adding an adequate temperature bylaw to the city's 2024 budget. It would require landlords to ensure unit temperatures don't exceed 26 degrees Celsius. And if it's passed, it could be the first of its kind in Canada. And we've got some time for some other news on the climate change front this week. The controversial Bay du Nord drilling project off the coast of Newfoundland has been put on hold. The Norwegian oil company Equiterre says it's pressing pause for up to three years because of what it calls challenging market conditions. Environmental groups and some First Nations are challenging the federal government's decision to approve the project last year. It's being called the wild, wild west of climate financing. Money from developed nations meant to help developing countries cut emissions and adapt to the effects of climate change is reportedly paying for some pretty questionable projects, like building a coal plant. An investigation carried out by Thomson Reuters News Service and Big Local News, a journalism initiative out of Stanford University, found that Italy sent money to help open a series of chocolate and gelato stores across Asia. Japan is financing that new coal operation in Bangladesh and an airport expansion in Egypt. There are other examples, but according to the report, Canadian funds have been invested in climate-related projects. California is becoming a no-go zone for insurers. State Farm Insurance Company, the largest in the U.S., announced it will no longer insure new homes or commercial properties in the state. It joins Allstate, which quietly stopped issuing new policies in California in 2022. Two other smaller insurance companies also said last year they'll stop renewing policies on high-end properties because of the risk of wildfire. Craig Stewart is the Vice President of Climate Change and Federal Issues for the Insurance Bureau of Canada. He spoke with CBC's Day 6. California is now a predictable place of wildfire loss. Very high populations, lots of lots of homes in, in very dry, high-risk areas. And it's very analogous to living in floodplains in Canada. As soon as something's no longer an accident, as soon as you can predict that that event is going to occur in a, in a particular region, it's no longer really a good candidate for insurance because insurance is designed to cover accidents. And you can hear the full interview with Craig Stewart on this week's episode of Day 6. It's on the CBC Listen app. A California woman has filed a class action lawsuit against Delta Airlines. She alleges the company's claim that it's the first carbon neutral airline is false and misleading. The airline announced plans in February of 2020 to go carbon neutral. The case centers on the company's use of carbon offsets, something Delta says it's now moved beyond. Delta says the proposed lawsuit, which hasn't yet been certified, has no legal merit. 
France is embracing life on two wheels in a big way. It's going to invest the equivalent of almost $3 million on bicycle lanes and paths. It will also provide subsidies for people wanting to buy bikes and provide lessons for children to learn how to ride. And where are all those bikes going to come from? There's also support for the French cycling industry to produce more vélos. And of course, you can read more about climate change in the CBC What on Earth newsletter. You can subscribe to have it delivered to your inbox every week. All right, we've got another climate hero for you. This is when you tell us about the person in your world who's going that extra kilometer for the planet. Christina Peck in Ottawa emailed us to nominate her daughter, Emily Jensen. So Emily's 11. She's in grade six. Uh, She's going to um, grade seven, so to middle school next year. And um, it's interesting. She's she's a kid that has these really big ideas. (laughs) She wants to make the world a better place and um, almost to the point where she doesn't, she's, she's not acting like her peers. She's not um, engaging in being a kid. She wants to focus her life on making the world a better place. And for Emily, that means cultivating greener spaces. Last year, she planted marigold seeds. After they bloomed, Emily sold the flowers on Mother's Day to raise money for charities focused on protecting nature. And this year, she's got a new fundraising plan. So I've held like bake sales and lemonade stands and stuff like that to raise money for charity. Mainly charities like Tree Canada and Nature United to help preserve forests and help add more greenery to the cities. And it's important because the trees will absorb carbon dioxide from the atmosphere, which um, adds to global warming and just add more greenery and try to replace the forests that have been cut down over the years. Emily tries to organize bake sales once or twice a month, and she's used the bake sales as an opportunity to chat with customers about climate change. And it's something she admits is a little difficult and intimidating, but she's slowly learning how. As a kid, I sometimes it feels a little bit hard for me to get my voice heard. And, uh, you know, I'd like to try to work towards something a little bit bigger than what I'm doing in the future. Emily's mom, Christina, says the future already looks brighter with Emily chipping away at solutions, but she hopes her daughter's passion will inspire others who are her age. I keep telling her um, that if everyone in her generation was as excited and as motivated as she is, then our world would have hope and would be a better place. I mean, I'm in my mid-40s, but their generation is the generation that's going to have to Uh, work at fixing everything that the people before them did. So it's so wonderful to see somebody who is um, who is dedicated and not just in what she does, but in just her mindset and the way that she thinks about the world um, and thinks about um, how her actions and our actions impact other people as well. Well, thank you for that, Christina and Emily. We do want to hear, though, about other climate heroes, the people in your community who are making a difference for the planet. Send us an email about who you're nominating and why, and we might just feature them on the show. The email is earth at cbc.ca. And that's all for us this week. If you missed any of today's program, you can listen on demand at CBC Listen, Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. The show was put together by associate producers Missy Johnson and Danielle Piper. 
Producers Rachel Sanders and Molly Siegel. Matthias Wolfson is our engineer. Catherine Rolfson is our senior producer. I'm Laura Lynch. Thank you for listening. For more CBC Podcasts, go to cbc.ca slash podcasts.